Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and every week I bring you two brand new original episodes on military history. Everything from Napoleonic battles through to the war on terror. But once a week, I like to delve into the History Hit archive and pull out an episode that I know you're going to absolutely love. This one is with Andrew Lambert. He's written The History of Sea Power States, about the tools and the methods that they use to control and exert influence across the high seas around the world. From the Athenians to the British, he discusses with Dan the way in which states become sea powers, and he also offers insight into whether sea powers can exist in the same way that they used to, and maybe they talk a little bit, just a little bit, about how America and China may interact just a little differently with the sea in the future. Now, if you love this episode, then make sure you like, follow, share, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, then pop us a five-star review because it helps us get out there to everyone who loves history. But now, here is Andrew Lambert on Sea Power States. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. This is a huge honour. You've been an absolute inspiration to me for years, the greatest naval historian working in the English language. And it feels like this book has been a long time coming. This, this, is, a, this is the biggest possible canvas, really, isn't it, for somebody who loves maritime history? It is. And yes, it has been a long time coming. Back in 1987, I got married and my wife and I took our honeymoon in Venice. And in some ways, this book was part of that. We went to Venice, neither of us had been before, and we just wandered around. It was late November and the light was fabulous. And it dawns on you gradually and increasingly more obviously as you walk around that this city is not like any other city. And it's not like any other city because it's a maritime city, because it's a very created environment. It's, it wasn't there, it was made. It was made to do a job and the Grand Palazzo on the Grand Canal, they're about trade and power and influence and display, and they're just completely unlike everything else. And then you go to other great maritime cities and you realize that there is something quite unique and specific about the, the built environment, the culture, 
And you start to see this in the way they think about business, the way they think about profit, the way they think about literature. And then you realize, slowly but surely, that these are remarkably self-aware political organizations, that unlike the great military autocracies, old-fashioned monarchies, modern dictatorships, they're acutely conscious of the fragility of their power. They're acutely conscious that they're not the first to do this. Even the Athenians, who probably invented the concept of a sea power state, wouldn't admit they'd invented it. They made up King Minos and the Cretans as a kind of, well, they did it first. We're, we're just following on. So over time, you realize that most people in the world don't think about these things in these ways. So what you end up with is an American literature where the Americans think they're a sea power, and they're not. The United States is a continental military empire which uses a navy to get to other places in the world. But the nature of American naval power is, is primarily amphibious. It's about putting power on the land. So the Americans use the sea as, as a vehicle, whereas the sea power states, for them, the sea is the target. And controlling trade, controlling access, controlling access to markets is absolutely definitive. I'm so happy to hear that your romantic mini-breaks are very similar to mine. And, and your wife will be looking at the sun going down and, and secretly you're just coming up with a theory about sea power states. And so you're not necessarily on the same page. My, my wife will be listening to this. Uh, you'll be triggering her. Can I just quickly, so your contention, so what is a sea power state? And the ones that you've picked out is obviously Athens, Britain, Phoenicia, Venice. What is the defining feature of yeah. A sea power state for me is first and foremost, a contemporary great power. Secondly, it's one that leverages the sea as its strategic, its economic, its political, and its imperial model. That it does so with a wider political base than a mere monarchy or an autocratic regime. That there is a degree of political inclusion involved. That with Athens, we have the Athenian version of democracy. Uh, the Carthaginians have a much more inclusive political system than their Roman rivals. This is a system where men of money, the, the city of Carthage, the traders, the merchants, these men have power in a way that in Rome they do not. Rome is, is a landed elite group uh, who very much trade in a, in a monoculture. Uh, so these are the critical things. These are states where the best and brightest on the military side are in the fleet, they're not in the army. Um, the Venetians, when they wanted an army, they hired some other Italians to fight for them. And if they lost the army, it didn't matter very much. The, the Venetians pulled oars and commanded ships. Uh, and you find the same with the Carthaginians. They used large amounts of mercenary manpower. That's the same with the Dutch. Most of their army was not Dutch national. They hired large numbers of Germans and Scandinavians. And the same with the British, who were still raising mercenaries in the Crimean War. The British never wanted to put their people into the front line of, of land combat on a large scale because they were far too important. They could be used to do other things like make money, progress trade, and above all, operate ships. It's definitively about seeing the sea as the center of your world, not as something hanging off the margin. The sea doesn't just connect you with your overseas territories, it connects you with the whole of your world, both real and imagined. So these are places of lively intellectual exchange. It's not accidental that classical Athens is producing really interesting speculative philosophy. 
but it's also obsessed with geography. It's obsessed with knowledge. Carthage is a knowledge acquisitive society. And when the Venetians get going, the first thing they want to do is to know everything they can about what the Athenians were doing. And those galleys the Venetians are mass producing, that's Athenian technology. And they've drilled down through the, the Muslim countries, through the Byzantine Empire, to get their hands on that material. And they are the first people to print in movable type Greek. And they're doing it in the 1490s. And if there is a Kickstarter for English ideas about sea power, it's Greek language text printed in Venice, brought home by Englishmen. And all of the Oxford and Cambridge colleges that have early printed Greek books, they've all come from the same print shop and they've all come the same way. Greek speaking, English travelers have brought them home. What comes first, chicken or egg, what comes first? This broader based political class or sea power and the need to staff it and pay for it? Ultimately, and, and I think Athens is the key example here, Athens becomes a democracy and then it makes the choice as a democracy to become a sea power. And so what I'm seeing, and, and certainly that's what I'm arguing, is that until the state has reached a politically inclusive level where it can make those big decisions and they can involve the people who have a stake in that state, they don't happen. So classical Athens before the democracy is just another Greek city-state with an army, the state that wins the Battle of Marathon. But within 20 years, it's become a completely different state. The democracy has turned all of that over. It still has that army, but it's abandoned the idea that they're going to beat the Spartans. They're gonna beat them another way. They're gonna beat them economically, navally, strategically, and they're gonna defeat them culturally as well. You know, the Parthenon complex is all about being the leaders of Greece and using the money from their very powerful Aegean Empire to pay for it. The Parthenon didn't emerge out of a hill, it emerged out of pots of gold, which were coming out of the trade they were controlling. Britain doesn't become England, Britain doesn't become proper sea power until after 1688, because that critical meshing of landed wealth, commercial wealth, economic interest, only happens when you set up the national debt, the Bank of England, and you've now got the men of land and the men of trade putting their money into this project. They're buying into the, the new state. And with that purchase, they're getting the right to control it. So the House of Lords has power, the House of Commons has power, and the City of London and the House of Commons are absolutely like this. By 1707, the Royal Navy, by law, has to put 25% of its effort into defending trade. The City of London is telling Parliament what to tell the Navy to do, and if they don't get what they want, they won't pay for the Navy. It's the Royal Navy, but it belongs to the city. The city is actually driving the, the whole project. And that's what doesn't happen in the other states that build navies at the same time. So I put Russia in there, not because it was a sea power, but because it shows you how not to be a sea power. They build a fleet, they build naval bases, they use ships quite aggressively. Peter and later Russian rulers have no interest in opening up the state and creating a merchant elite who can fund and sustain this project. And sustain strikes me as a key word because obviously mm. unlike raising an infantry battalion or regiment, mm. navies are very long-term projects, aren't they? Dry docking, supply, everything. So you see these little upsurges of ancien regimes and like Henry V had a big English navy, then it kind of it just disappears, or or Louis XIV has a giant navy. But is that so does that reflect the fact you need this kind of consensus long-term 
buy-in from all these different locuses of power around the yeah. around the state. Yeah, you you have to have a political model that's inclusive. And when I started the book, I played around with using the idea of democracy. As but of course, several of the states I'm talking about are not actually particularly democratic, and certainly not by modern standards. They're oligarchic, but they're elite oligarchies who include the people who have the interest in the sea and persuading the, the landed, the obvious interest, to come on board and buy into that. That's why the English system works, because you have this constant interchange between new money, commercial wealth, and old money, landed wealth, and this constant kind of re-energizing. So Henry VIII wipes out the aristocracy, and he creates a new aristocracy, mostly lawyers and merchants and people who've profited from the dissolution of the monasteries. And these people are much more receptive to ideas of engagement with trade than the previous aristocracy, who were more concerned with bloodlines and legitimacy in the kind of Louis XIV way. So the French state is never going to generate a decent navy because it's run from the center and the object is to recreate the Roman Empire. So Louis XIV's core project is anti-naval. The enemies of Rome are countries like Carthage that use the sea. The Roman idea of ruling the sea is to rule the whole of the Mediterranean littoral, so there was no possibility of anybody doing anything at sea. And then they just abandoned the navy because it wasn't interesting. And there's a massive upsurge of piracy, which they solve by landing an army, not by patrolling at sea. And at this time, they're also operating with the, the city-state of Rhodes in the eastern Mediterranean, which is doing really serious anti-piracy because it's the major hub for the eastern Mediterranean grain trade and they're using their money to run a very effective anti-pirate navy as subcontractors to the great powers of the region. So you get, get different models, but Rhodes is a democracy and Rome isn't. So inclusive government is absolutely essential. In the Dutch case, the golden age of the Dutch Republic is when they didn't have a military leader. The period between the death of Willem II and the the appointment of Willem III is 22 years, and it's the years of, of Rembrandt and just explosion of, of Dutch intellectual activity, power, culture. The Dutch invent modern sea power culture, and they do it very quickly. And then in 1672, the French invade, and it all collapses in ruins. But Charles II buys all the top artists. So English marine painting is actually Dutch marine painting which was imported to make Charles look like a great king by painting his ships. And it ends up being the art of the nation. And it's no accident that the fighting Temeraire is a literal descendant of van der Velde's canvases, because Turner is acutely aware of who his progenitors are. And the national art of the English is actually something invented by the Dutch. But Henry VIII was using Flemings to paint ships for him in the 1530s. So art and power have always gone together. So Henry VIII, in his attempt to make a sea power state, as you approach the throne, hanging on either side is a long vellum roll with pictures of all of his ships, just in case you don't know how strong he is. So the famous picture of the Mary Rose we have with all the guns sticking out the gun ports, that was part of the display of Henry's power. So at eye line, as you walked up to the throne, would be the two mightiest ships in the fleet. So the whole thing was organized as and as you came in the room, there was that famous picture of the embarkation for the Field of the Cloth of Gold, where Henry is standing on his battle fleet. But of course, the Henry who's standing on the battle fleet is Henry of 1539. It's not the Henry who went to the Field of the Cloth of Gold at all. It's Holbein's Henry. You know, so there's a little version of the Holbein Henry standing on the, 
on the deck of one of the battleships. And they're all done up with the full pomp and regalia of, of, the, of the Tudor dynasty, the colours, the badges, and everywhere bronze artillery saying, look at me, I have a big fleet and an enormous park of bronze artillery. And what happens after 1688 is that all of this precursor material, Henry V, Henry VIII, anybody in England who'd ever been to sea in a ship and done any business becomes part of the backstory. But they're only part of the backstory because now, after 1688, England is a true sea power and it can turn all of that history into a useful way of explaining the present. But if 1688, James II wins and England becomes a Catholic autocracy, none of this happens. You know, I'm minded of Admiral Sanders, who I've who I've come across a bit a little bit in writing and things, who, who commanded the fleet. He's the unsung hero of the Siege of Quebec, yeah. he's now 1759. I think he joins like Cook before the mast, and I think yeah. so. And he rises to become a very wealthy member of Parliament. So he enters that elite oligarchy very excessively, sits in Parliament, is able to shape policy, and he's a man who owes in, in his entire career and worth to the sea. Yeah, and if you look at some of his contemporaries, Edward Boscawen um, comes in from the other end of the social spectrum, but also has a fabulously successful naval career. He's critical at the Siege of Louisbourg, uh, you know, two years before. So the Navy is open to all talents. And you look at a Navy that's doing that, that tells you something quite important. The Dutch Navy was very much a talent-based service. Uh, navies that insist, as Louis XIV did, on 16 quarterings of nobility never work. Because if you've got 16 quarterings, you've probably got a large landed estate, which is far more interesting than going to sea and getting wet and miserable. Okay, this is a question that I'm lucky I can now put to the world's greatest maritime historian. Why does what happens on the water matter on, or let's let's go before the invention of the railroad, motor car, and and aeroplanes. Why does for most of human history what happens on the water prove decisive for what goes on on the land? Well, let's go let's go back to the dawn of time. In the Bronze Age, in order to equip an army, you needed quite a lot of things, but you needed tin and bronze, and the supplies of copper in the Eastern Mediterranean, mostly from Cyprus. So if, like the Cretans, you ran Cyprus, you controlled the world's supply of weapons-grade metal. You also controlled access to what little tin there was in the Mediterranean. You had an absolute dominion over everything. And this made great empires your client. So the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians were constantly working with the Phoenicians to get their hands on metals. And so the Tyrians, the Sidonians were able to carve out a very powerful position. These are tiny little, you know, if you've, if you've walked on the ground where Tyre was, it's not, it's tiny. And yet they have huge amount of power vis-a-vis uh, -vis these great landed empires because the world's first shipwreck, the Uliburun wreck, it's got enough tin and copper, 10 tons of, of copper, one ton of tin, to equip a small army. Um, it's just one shipwreck. And the, the, the value of that material to the ancient world is phenomenal. And then when the Athenians come along, they're putting a ton and a half's worth of copper on the front of each of their triremes, and they have two, three hundred. So all of a sudden there's an arms race. So the importance of controlling resources and access to resources. The Carthaginians, well, Carthage is just a way station between Tyre and, and Cadiz. It happens to become the successor of Tyre when the Mesopotamians finally decide to destroy it as an economically viable asset. And that's a critical part of this land power conundrum. They don't really understand what it is they're dealing with. They confuse size with 
consequence. So if you're in Mesopotamia, you've got no decent building stone, you've got no decent timber, and you don't have any of the key metals to make Bronze Age weapons. So how do you run your empire? Well, if you're the Assyrians, very, very aggressively, and you descend on the coast of, of the Levant uh, frequently to asset strip their forests to get your hands on the vital metals, and you fight the Egyptians for them. And these are the great battles, and they're about resources, and those resources are controlled offshore. The Athenians are doing the same. They're controlling critical supply, particularly the grain trade. And once you've got that, you become very, very powerful, and you don't need an army. As you say, both the British and the Dutch during their hegemonic periods, extraordinary how they're able to maintain that kind of global reach with actually tiny armies, really. Yeah. Well, the, the strategy of a sea power is not what Alfred Thayer Mahan said, which was you have a great fleet battle and that decides things. You use control of the sea to your advantage. And you do that by having enough naval assets to be superior. And whenever you are superior, you then use whatever army you've got to destroy everybody else's ships. So the classic British operation of war is a raid on somebody's dockyard and blowing it up or burning it and sinking their ships. Even the Crimean War, it's a grand raid to burn the Russian dockyard. It's not intended to seize territory. Uh, how do you command the Black Sea? Well, you torch the Russian fleet, blow up their dockyard, and then you can do as you please. So that's the way the British see these things. What is the enemy doing with his fleet? Can we burn it? Can we blow it up? Is there some way we can take it away from them? Once we've done that, then we can double down our assets and do the thing that really gives sea power its great strength. You can attack their economy. So all of these great landed empires, their economies are ultimately vulnerable to the loss of access to the sea, some more than others. Crimean War, how were the Russians defeated? They were bankrupted. The British stopped buying all of their exports and their economy collapsed. And it would happen tomorrow if we did the same. Russia depends absolutely on exporting bulky products which go by sea, the old pipeline as well. So that's how they work. They don't take on these continental enemies symmetrically. And when the British join coalitions down to the First World War, they make sure that they dominate the maritime space and use the power they get from that, the economic power and the strategic power, to ensure that their aims are paramount in the peace process. When we get to the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the British say to the rest of the Europeans, we will not talk about a few issues because as far as we're concerned, that's already done. There'll be no discussion of Britain's rather hardline maritime belligerent rights regime, the basis of blockade, which we've just used to break the American and the French and the Russian economies. The French and the Russians and the Americans would very much like to talk about these and restrict them. It's not going to happen. We will seize and hold various bits of colonial territory that we think are absolutely essential to controlling the world ocean. The Cape's not going back. Not the Cape, not Ceylon, not Mauritius, because it was a decent base for the French and had a good harbour. We let them have Bourbon back because it's got no harbour. So very, very particular, you know, nuanced. The British create modern Belgium just to keep the French out. You know, it's, we don't care who rules Belgium or, or how it operates, but if the French in Belgium, that's a threat. They can use the Scheldt estuary as an invasion base. We have to keep them out of there. So that's the first thing that's settled when Napoleon abdicates in 1814. French out of Belgium and, oh, why don't we give it to the Dutch? That will do. And when that unravels, we create a different kind of Belgium, but it's the same project. We will keep the French out of Belgium. That's 
British strategy in the 19th century. As long as we keep the French out of Belgium, everything else will be okay. And then in 1914, we get a bit confused because it's not the French. And then we miss the point entirely and let the Germans get in and they cause enormous trouble by using just Ostend and Zeebrugge as, as bases. You know, that was one of the real catastrophes of the First World War, failing to hold easily secure territory. Complete failure of British and Allied military leadership. Imagine a millennium that laid the foundations for the modern world as we know it today, when kingdoms were forged, languages shaped, cultures created. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and on Gone Medieval, my co-host Matt Lewis and I will tell you just why the so-called Dark Ages really weren't that dark after all. Subscribe to Gone Medieval by History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Well, the other thing about sea powers is, that's often said about them is Perhaps, again, it's chicken and egg. They maintain their popularity with the ruling elite because it's hard to impose authoritarian government using a navy. Yeah. Is this something that's, that's true across the states that you've identified? It is. The navy becomes tied in with the popular side of politics. 
So we find that when the Spartans do defeat the Athenians at the end of the Peloponnesian War, they go in and they tear down the long walls to the Piraeus and they, they get rid of the ships and they, they're going to demolish all of the ship sheds and, and the whole architecture of the Athenian maritime state. And the people of the Piraeus lead the counter-revolution and they overthrow the oligarchs who've been put in place and, and they rebuild the navy. And, and Plato tells you this. Here we have this great Athenian philosopher who loathes the sea, who hates ships. He, he despises foreigners and wants nothing to do with any of this because it's really bad stuff. And he says, look, you should move your city at least 10 miles from the coast. That way you won't be infected by all of this stuff. We should have nothing to do with it. The Romans have read this, and that's what they say to the Carthaginians before the Third Punic War. They say, look, if you'll take your city down and move it 10 miles inland, we'll leave you alone. And the Carthaginians go, well, that's what we are. You know, we landed here on the coast. We didn't ride here on horseback. We came by sea. This is who we are. We don't actually own the land 10 miles away. They only owned the little tiny bit where the city was. So they said, no, stuff it, we'll fight. Um, and they did, and the Romans rubbed them out because they didn't want anything that represented those ideas to exist. The Romans read Plato, and they applied Plato, and they thought like Plato. And so, funnily enough, to the Chinese. I think Plato and Confucius would have had a pretty straightforward discussion on sea power, and they would have agreed they loathed it, uh, and all of the things that went with it, political, economic, and, and elsewise. Actually, you've mentioned China. We should talk about the ultimate unmaritime state, albeit a great naval power, and that is early 15th century China, who yeah. launched these gigantic expeditions. And so, so talk to me briefly about that, and then, but also their consequence or lack of yeah. consequence. So China is a, is a problem um, because it's always represented as if it's some kind of country, and of course it's not. It's a very large empire. There are large numbers of people within the boundaries of China today, as there have been for, for centuries, who do not see themselves as Chinese uh, and certainly don't share the agendas of, of a Han Chinese majority. But China's security problem has always been the North and the, and the barbarians on horseback. You know, the great project is, is the wall and it's to keep the horse armies out. And that's why Beijing is up against the wall because that's the main security threat. So one of the men who was dealing with that the Yongli Emperor built what we know as the Great Treasure Fleet and sent it off around Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean, east coast of Africa, up right up to the Straits of Hormuz. And what are they doing? According to some strange ideas, the Chinese were creating a maritime empire and they were opening up the world in a kind of Columbus way. They were doing no such thing. They were doing two really interesting things. The Yongli Emperor had overthrown his nephew therefore was not wholly legitimate. He needed to make sure that this nephew had actually been bumped off and that, that he was you know, at least entitled to be the emperor on those grounds. So they were going around the expatriate Chinese community looking for deposed emperors. And secondly, they were dealing with the expatriate community because the Chinese don't recognize expatriates as Chinese in political terms. So the response of China to the massacre of expatriate communities by the Spanish and the Dutch in the 17th and 18th centuries was absolutely nothing. And Zheng He's fleet crushed these expatriate trading communities because they were damaging the tribute system. They were alternative Chinese operators. The Chinese state wanted to be given tribute even nominal tribute and recognized as superior, they did not want to support a group of freewheeling Chinese merchants who were making money 
So they crushed a lot of the expatriate Chinese community. They brought back a few giraffes and some other stuff and a lot of promissory notes from people in places the Chinese had a hard job finding on a map who said that they were indeed tribute-bearing subjects of the emperor. And with that, the emperor burnt the fleet and headed off to fight the barbarians, who were the real problem all along. He needed to be absolutely the emperor in order to mobilize a large army and deal with the barbarians and then mend the Great Wall and keep them out. So this is not what China was doing and it's not what they're doing now. The Chinese fleet is a diversion from their real agendas, which are domestic. While I was writing that book, I did say that we were about to get a new Chinese emperor and it's inevitable. Uh, President for life and emperor are merely two versions of the same thing. And as a good Marxist, I'm sure the president of China has read the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte uh, and knows the irony of what he's doing. Um, Louis Napoleon Bonaparte, president, president for life, emperor. Um, he was a bit quicker off the mark, but I think President Xi is playing a slightly longer game, but he'll be the emperor. Um, he's replaced all of the other leadership contenders. He's changed the, the leadership cadre. It's now very much a dynastic rather than a political elite. And slowly but surely the Communist Party is morphing into a personal fiefdom. And when all of this is done and China is stable and they've worked their course for the 21st century, the Navy will probably disappear. They're not spending much money on this. This is a very cheap Navy. There's a lot of stuff, but it's not expensive stuff. You know, second-hand rusty Russian aircraft carriers, you know, Chinese copies of rusty Russian aircraft carriers, uh, a bit of Photoshop, roughly the same number of destroyers and frigates as the Americans, but not in the same ballpark in terms of capability. It's largely a show for the populace, and it's to use the nationalism card as a tool for the creation of the new empire. So does, does, um, you must have thought a lot about this towards the end of your book. I mean, do, what does the sea power state mean in today's world of now that we have a digital space, now that we have aviation, taking lots of heavy objects on land is obviously much easier. Do, is there still such a thing as a sea power state? What I did with the book really was to, to wrap it all up in 1945 when at the end of the Second World War it becomes painfully obvious that one of the United States' primary objectives was to finish what Woodrow Wilson started in the First World War, which was to take down the British Empire uh, as a major capitalist competitor. And when you're flat broke, you sort of have to give way and have to do what the Americans tell you because there's no other way around. So there has not been a sea power great power since 1945, and I don't anticipate there will ever be one again because the, the economies of scale of countries like China and the United States mean that they, they are going to be dominant. What there is, is a collective of what we might call Western, but that, that isn't geographical, that's cultural, of, of cultural sea powers, states for whom the sea is absolutely critical, who base their identity around global activity, economic, political, and will always act together to defend the free movement of goods at sea. So the countries who turned up willingly and enthusiastically for the Somali pirate issue, which do not include the United States, who um, were doing something else because the United States Navy doesn't do legal enforcement. Its officers are not legally trained. That's what the Coast Guard is for. So there is a collective. Britain is part of that. So is Denmark. So are the Dutch. So are the Japanese. So are the South Koreans. You know, they have a great deal in common and the thing that unites them is the sea. And the volume of stuff moving by sea is greater than it ever has been in human history. 
and it's moving more easily and more safely and more effectively than ever. So what we've forgotten is that the thing that our ancestors in this country and in other countries fought about so violently uh, was pretty small beer in terms of what they were moving in value terms, but in absolute contemporary terms was equally important. So we're talking about British trade with India in the 18th century, it's big, but you could put it all on one container ship um, and have space for quite a lot else besides. You know, it, it, it's not significant by contemporary volumes. And all of that trade is being driven by a global Western sea power consensus. And the opponents of that trade are countries that don't like progress. It was no accident Al-Qaeda attacked a World Trade Center because world trade is the thing they fear more than anything else. You know, this is what's going to suck the masses away from their particular version of Islam. Uh, it's no accident that the, the rogue outliers are the ones who are quite happy to do without trade. The North Koreas of this world, they'd rather starve. There's still a binary divide. It's just now it's not a great power divide. It's a, it's a conceptual divide. And the main muscle of Western sea power is the US Navy, which is not interested in that kind of sea power at all. You know, it's a very kinetic kind of sea power. They think about war, projection of power. But the fact that their fleets are out there provides the cover within which other more sea power oriented navies operate. So if you've got the Dutch, the British, the Danes and the Japanese operating off the coast of East Africa, dealing with threats to maritime security of an economic nature, that's what sea power looks like. And it's going to remain critically important until the world stops turning because that's how things are going to get done. Why are the Chinese building a huge railway all the way to Europe? Because they're frightened that they will lose access to the sea. Uh, otherwise, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's also a tool of Chinese imperialism. The new tribute bearers of the Chinese empire will be all of those states that have a big Chinese railway running through it. They will lose their access to their own internet. Uh, they will lose access to other vital things like possibly even representation in the United Nations and they will become satellites. They will become almost hollowed out provinces of, of the Chinese empire. And the only question is where the railway ends. And if it ends in Berlin, uh, certainly they're, they're doing this to Russia. The carcass of Russia is being picked over by the Chinese, I think with, with great skill, they're asset stripping the Russians for all they're worth. And when they're finally finished, they will take back the bits of China that the Russians stole from them in the 19th century. Because, you know, as we know, the Chinese have asked all of the Western powers to give back, you know, Hong Kong and Macau and all of these things. They've never asked the Russians who took, you know, a huge swathe of northern China around the Amur River Basin. I said to them years ago, when are you going to ask for that back? They said, not yet. <laughs> when they're ready, they'll ask for it back. And at the moment, ethnic Chinese are flooding into this region anyway because the ethnic Russians are retreating back to the center. So they will get it one way or another. And the more of China there is, the less likely it is that China will want to go to sea and use that as a, as a significant issue. The main threat at the moment for the Chinese is that their second strike nuclear deterrent is sea-based and it's insecure because the Japanese know exactly where it is and would probably sink it quite quickly. So that's what so-called Senkaku's Islands dispute is about. That's the first place where you can put your submarines in deep water. And that's what that dispute is about. It's not about territory, it's about deep water. So as you come to the edge of the continental shelf, that's the place where the Japanese are waiting for them. And they were doing that to the Russians all the way through the Cold War, off Vladivostok.
So that's the entire raison d'etre of the Japanese submarine arm is, is tailgating ballistic missile submarines. And they're very, very good yeah. at it. And they've just built extra submarines, so they're even better at it. Well, like any good discussion of superpower, we've covered a lot of territory there. 40 minutes mm. and I'm going to have to let you go now. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew no. Lambert. The book is... Sea Power States, Maritime Culture, Continental Empires, and the Conflict That Made the Modern World. And it's with Yale. How do you, where do you go after this? What's the next one? The next book is called The British Way in Warfare, and it's an intellectual biography of Sir Julian Corbett, the greatest maritime strategist of them all. And it attempts to understand in more detail how a sea power state operates and contribute to the ongoing debate about where Britain's strategic policy should be heading in the future. Because Corbett, at the dawn of the 20th century, was capturing and processing the experience of war. And he wrote very enthusiastically about the operation at Quebec, which you've, you've also written about. And he fitted it into a continuum. So Corbett is the man who says, look, when we took Quebec, we left the French no option in the war other than to attempt to invade England. And the direct result of that was the Battle of Quiberon Bay, which wiped out the French Navy and allowed the British to blockade the French so strongly that their economy collapsed and their war effort collapsed. And we won the Seven Years' War pretty straightforward as a result of that. So he, he was critical in seeing the big picture, how the, the political and strategic levels are operating, how men like Pitt the Elder, Lord Anson um, and de Gonier are planning a strategic concept which maximizes Britain's advantages and minimizes the need to raise large numbers of foot soldiers uh, and when possible make sure those foot soldiers didn't speak English because the Navy was always short of good men. Well, that sounds like a classic. I'm sure um, in, in our new exciting era post-Brexit Britain, that will be a, a must-read tome. Well, it, we might be post-Brexit by the time I finish a book in a couple of years' time. We might not. <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.